out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Vic Goddard, who I spoke to very recently during lockdown, um, to find out more about life, love, poetry and everything else. So, um, yes, this is the interview. We were just talking a little bit, but I'll just give you some background. Um, yes, he's got a new a newsletter that they started to put together, and also there's a new album that's out towards the end of the year that's been produced by the one and only Mick Jones of The Clash. So, um, yes, this is the conversation. And as you'll gather, um, I'm a little bit confused at one stage, but eventually we get there and it's fine. But it does make me laugh listening back to it. Anyway, yes, anyway, Vic, just tell us more about your m- newsletter and uh, we'll dig down on that information. Right, it's over to you, Mick. Vic? Yeah, it's really good. That's, that's, um, we've just done the first one. So we, what we're doing, we're getting stories about people that have been in the subway sector from 76 to the present day to just send us in our stories and we're going to try and link them up with photos from the era and sto- and just generally have a theme you know yes. for each one and how and when did that and when did you sort of um wake up and think i've got a good idea with this one this is going to be a this no, is going to be a partner mandy's idea she said what we need to do because you're not doing any gigs you need to do a newsletter because she's um, done that sort of thing before, but not in the music biz, in sort of like in retail. So I thought, yeah, we can't do any recording at the moment. We've got an album coming out and we can't promote it. So I thought that's a great way of doing it. Yes. So what you've got at the first one, because I've just seen this newsletter, and yeah. are you going to, are you got, have you got plans of sort of then at the end, putting it into a, some sort of book publication? Well, we've got more than that. Not necessarily the newsletter. What we're doing, though, we're working on four separate things. Every All the um, the members of the Subway set now, which is me, Johnny Britton, Chris Bostock, and Sean McCluskey, we all come from totally different worlds. And we're doing, um, we're all doing writing projects at the moment. So we're going to hopefully put all four of those together into a sort of volume. Yes. And so that's one thing. But then these um, these reminiscences, I mean, they could, I suppose they could be collected together. We're not doing it for that. We're just doing it for something to do instead of gigs, really. Yes. To promote the album. Yes. So, because um, a couple of months ago, just as we had the lockdown happen, there was a couple of people I interviewed who just got albums out, which one of them was Hank Wangford, who yeah. was who was particularly despondent, and so was another guy as well, because I think he was much younger and had a lot of... Because, um, well, this other chap had spent two years recording an album, and, t- you know, like, you're not going to make much money, but you're going to be able to tour it through because they were from America. So I think he'd sort of worked out that will be fine. We'll just tour America for a year and hopefully recoup some money and sell the album and sell lots of T-shirts as well. And it's like he was a bit depressed when I spoke to him. So how have you found this kind of period? Oh, I'm not in that boat, luckily. I don't really, I don't do it for money. You know, I, I don't, I've got my post of his pension, haven't I? <laughs> so I don't actually need the money. 
That's nice. That's nice. Yeah, it's lovely. So I don't need to do gigs, but I do need the album to get out there because it's the best album I've ever done. And Mick Jones produced it for nothing when normally he charges 10 grand. So I really, yeah, we all want to get it as good as possible, these, you know, the sales and the profile of it for, more, you know, for Mick's sake more than anything else. Well, absolutely. And when did you, I mean, this... But this is just... When did you start recording the new album? Because obviously this was all... November last year. We did it in two five-day weeks um, at the end of November last year. Yes. And, and it with... was meant to be coming out in April, but that's when like, everything went haywire. It went rather haywire. And, yeah. um, I mean, because cause you, you, you know, literally go back decades, don't you, into the world yeah. that, that is recording. So when you yeah. were bringing this new album out, which is titled um all these like these all these moments like these moments like these yes right just three words three easy to remember words i'll try and remember those (laughs) 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 yes i mean because because the previous album was about four four years ago wasn't it 1979 now no 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 it wasn't it was you miss mum's revenge my God, there's so much, isn't there? That was um, that was a year before we recorded this one. That came out in 2018, I think it is. 2017 or 2018, one of the two. Mum's Revenge. Mum's Revenge. Yes. If you look up my um, band camping, I've got the whole back catalogue on there. Yes. what I've been doing, I've been going around all these record companies during lockdown as well. well I've been going around, I've been emailing them because I've got a good friend that works for the PPL, you know the Phonographic Performance Limited who yes. deal with the, um, royalties and all that and the rights of the songs and I found that I didn't own any, hardly any of my own rights but now I do because I've sort of written to all the rights holders saying you know from now on I own them and I haven't had anyone argue with me, so now I've got my whole catalogue on Bandcamp. Well, I haven't actually put it all up. We're doing it in dribs and drabs to keep the interest going. So the next release is um, the reissue of Songs for Sale, which is the first album, I, well, the only album I did in 1982 with the lineup that I've got now. So that is going to be a sort of precursor to moments like these, just oh. reissuing um, Songs for Sale on Bandcamp digitally with extra bonus tracks that weren't on the original and with like a booklet that's not with the original explaining how the group came together and all that. Because on Bandcamp you can do all that and you can make it available for people to print out at home if they want to or just read it all on the computer. Yes, well I think people... you don't get if you buy it from like iTunes, you just get the tracks and nothing else, don't you? It's a bit cold. You, you, need, yeah. you need something to hold, don't you, really? Something a bit yeah, more solid. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I've just been getting all, all the rights back from all the companies so that from now on, all the whole of my catalogue doesn't go to anyone else. Yes. That's what I've sort of been doing during lockdown. I know, because I was talking to a drummer the other day about PPL, which I hadn't really come across before, and he he got in touch with them, and it was like, actually, you owe me lots of money, because there was some, there'd been some change in the wording, or the law, or some legislation, which meant that he was due some money, which he'd never got before, and it was like, okay. um, He has to be a member of it first, is he a member? I didn't go into that much detail, but he did suddenly say... first. 
but then he suddenly realised that, you know, there was something that had changed that he didn't know. And then he's suddenly getting, not a pension quite, but some little regular man that's like... Oh, that's nice. That's better than what he was Must getting. Played on some big hits, maybe. Yeah, well, he was in a quite a, quite a, I don't know, quite a popular band in the late 80s and early 90s, and they did... Well, that's what PPL does. It makes sure the people that played on hit records get money, not just the people who and all that it's the people who play on it and all that as well yes well I think for they did three albums and and they they were very popular in the UK and I think they did quite a bit in America for one period but like with most bands they they don't last for you know a huge amount of time before musical differences creep in and things start to change (laughs) (laughs) because just going back which is always kind of interesting Yes, I know. That's um, you just yes. So when you were just when you were just Victor John, yeah. When we you know growing up during that sort of that period, which was probably during the sixties, did you have any kind of musical leanings then? Did you come from a musical house? Yeah, definitely. My sister was like a a bit of a mod, so she's like nine years older than me. So she introduced all that sort of music, but me. My mum used to play the piano in pubs during World War Two, but she, we didn't have a piano because um, my, my uncle, unfortunately, because they didn't have any firewood, he chopped my mum's piano up while she was at work and used it for firewood, believe it or not. Well, I kind so of vaguely do. He never played the piano again. God, that's horrendous. So oh, she, she, so she had that kind of musical back, musical background of sort yeah. of. She really enjoyed that kind of world and that my was. Dad is like the same that he's, he used to play the accordion a bit in the pubs, and he also used to go to the social clubs in the area and on a Friday night and just do one song, which a lot of working class blokes used to do in those days. You know, you'd go to the club. And there'd be a pianist, and they'd invite audience members to get up and sing anything they knew. Yeah. So I remember my dad doing that from an early age. Um, did you, I mean, as a family, well, not you, because you were, probably weren't born then, but were they in London during the Second World War? Yeah, yeah. So they survived yeah, my that? Dad's house got totally flattened with his mother in it, believe it or not. Because I remember. She survived, and the cat got buried under there for six weeks and they they heard a sound and they got the cat out six weeks later as well. Blimey. The lady next door died because it was in an air raid shelter and the whole house was just a pile of rubble and one end of the shelter caved in, which is where the next door neighbour was, but the end where my grandma was stayed put and that's why, that's why she's not dead. Well, no, absolutely. She is now, but she wasn't then. No, well, good. And the cat was somewhere halfway between. Yeah, and my dad was coming home from the pub, and he said, as he got nearer and nearer his house, there was sort of more and more damage until when he got to his house, there was just a pile of bricks. So, of course, he thought the worst. He thought that his brother and his mother were dead, but his brother wasn't even in, which he didn't know. But his mother had been under it, but she'd already been taken to hospital by then. Yes, blimey, that is quite, yeah. that's quite, that's, well, I come from East Anglia, so, and I, my dad was very young during the war, and I think they, their kind of experience was quite, 
I don't know. They had an American Air Force base there, so they yeah. they had all the Americans, and and they had to sort of put up. You know, they, every person who had a house, you know, would have to often have an American stay with them for a certain period of time, which was quite an yeah. interesting period. So, with your childhood, was was kind of were you one of those kids who were kind of very keen and sort of fascinated with the music kind of world? Did you know, like, when yeah. Definitely. I used to be mad on Kinks and Georgie Fame, the Foundations, Four Tops. Yeah, I just love, always loved music from an early age. Yes. And did I've you... i a story about my dad, because um, he's nearly 99, right, and he was spindled through the war. A few years ago, um, I was driving along the road in Kew, and I, I saw this body in the gutter, right? And it was really late at night. It was really cold. It was about half eleven at night. So I stopped the car. And it was an old Japanese bloke, right? And he looked like he was dying. So I got him into the car. And I, I didn't know what to do with him because he couldn't talk. He was shivering so much. So I thought, well, I've got to take him home. So I pulled him home round here. And it was just me and my dad there. My dad said, oh, get, give him a whiskey. So I went and got a whiskey. He drunk a bit this whiskey and we put him right by the fire with a blanket over him. And as he sort of got warmer, he could talk. And he, he was a he was um, I talk, he was a Japanese soldier in the war. And he lived down the road and he'd just been on he'd um, he'd just fallen over and because it was late at night, no one had found he must have been there a couple of hours. You know, no one had found him until I happened to drive by. So, um, my dad and him had a real good chat about the war. <laughs> and then I just drove him home when we found out where his address was. And then, sadly, died about a year after that, we heard. <laughs> oh, my God. That is such yeah, a... Yeah, really weird night, that was. I would imagine that would be up there with one of the more surreal moments of your life, actually. It was, yeah, it was. And your dad must have felt quite... And how did your dad sort of, you know... Oh, he, he was really interested. I mean, he, he's although he went through the war, he, he's not one of these. He's not one of these. Um, he's not a patriot at all. Luckily, you know, he was a communist when he was a kid, because that was quite big in the working class parts of London in the twenties and thirties. Yes. Um, so he's not like a patriot or anything. So That's... he was quite happy to. Yeah, he just doesn't like war, basically. Yes, I would imagine. Nor did this bloke either. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's probably he probably would would campaign against it. So when you you know just briefly, I mean, when when we were getting to the end of the sixties, obviously from about sixty seven, you know, things were changing a lot in the you know yeah, both in in, in in the UK, especially London, because yeah. you had the swinging London scene, and there was all the yeah. kind of the summer of love and. Lots of people getting very colourful and starting to take more, well, smoke more drugs, as well as yeah. you know, LSD and stuff like that. Did that hippie world sort of come into no, you? No, I was a skinhead. I was going to Chelsea every week, see? Yes. And I didn't have the skinhead haircut, but I had all the gear. I had Dr. Mars, I had Ivy's, I had Levi's, Stay Press, Fred Perry's, Ben Sherman's. Everything, every skinhead fashion, I, I had it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what made you sort of think, that's, that's for me? I even had a tonic suit when I was about 12, believe it or not. <laughs> Blimey. Did you, did you hang with a bit of a hard group? Yeah, well, 
Um, we were at grammar school, local grammar school, which um, had hard nuts in it. Like, and the, one of the worst schools in the area was Barnes School, which had a bit of a horrible reputation for not teaching anyone anything. And a lot of the people at Sheen, they were brothers and mates of the ones at the hard school down the road. So the, the people, they weren't necessarily hard, but they were kids that were three years or two years older than us that had all the gear, for, you know, first, so that you knew what it Well, you, you went to school and thought, what is he wearing? You know, you'd never seen shoes like that. And then you'd go up and say, oh, what are they called? You know, and that's how we learned how to get the right gear just by going up to the older kids and asking them. Now, I'll never forget the first time I saw a kid in the fourth year wearing a Prince of Wales suit. Never seen anything like it. And that was a sort of more suede head. That was after skinheads. But yes. I, really, I never got one myself, but I was, that was what I always wanted. <laughs> yeah. And how did people afford such kind of clothes? Um, well... The, the ivy, the raw things they used to call ivies, because there was a shop in Richmond called the Ivy Shop. They're actually called Royals. They're, they're these brogues, and they also made Gibsons and um, tongue and tassel loafers and all that, which they imported from America. Um, actually, I think they're all imported from America, all their shoes, I think. But they were made to look like classic English brogues, but done in America, which is why they're so expensive, because um, I'll tell you how I got my money. Um, my dad worked in an engineering factory, right, and he used to bring this stuff to do at home. As, as so He had a little machine to do these little... Um, you had to put a thread on these little parts for uh, cars, little mini ball bearing type things. You had to put the thread on them, and you got paid by how many you did. So he did a couple of hours overtime on this machine, and then I did a couple of hours, and he paid me what he would have earned, you know what I mean, for doing that many things. They're called olives of things. Yes. And then, not only that, but I had a paper round as well. And then when I got to about 15 or 16, I got a Saturday job at Burton's in Richmond, which was quite hilarious. And, and I always had jobs. And also, I used to work in a local... Um, me and the bass player from Subway St. Myers, we, we got a job working for this um, local metalwork factory in Sheen on Saturdays. And um, that's how we got our money. It's called um, LWT Fabrications Limited because, unbelievably, the the metal sign for the place is still there. The place isn't there, but the sign for it still is there. Yes. And, um, we were absolutely useless. I mean, he wouldn't let us near any engineering. He used to just mainly get us to do things like paint his office and do silly things like that. <laughs> and once, he gave us a sort of... Um, he gave us an important job, and he really stressed how important it was. He said, all you've got to do is, like, he gave us about hundreds and hundreds of these great big long bits of metal, about 30 foot long, and he said, they've got to be cut exactly in half. And we fucked the whole lot up, didn't we? <laughs> we cut them all up, and they weren't anywhere near half. So not only did he have to cut half of them to half, the other lot he had to throw away. <laughs> you just lost me. I think we got 
snack the week after that. <laughs> I'll never forget his face, though, and he saw what we've done. It was worth getting us back just to see his face. He's and he goes, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> it's really hilarious. Yes. <laughs> Yes, he probably wouldn't make that mistake again, would he? No. So when when did you start to discover not just the love of music, but the fact that you had a bit of musical kind of, you know, a voice? Ability. Ability. Well, I mean, that was after the subway sex started, to be honest, because I didn't really have a role in the group at first because um, I didn't play an instrument. And the people that we tried to cobble together... Um, I just had a harmonica, and that didn't really figure in punky sort of stuff, so that wasn't much use. So um, I was meant to be the drummer, but I just couldn't drum. You know, we bought a drum kit. <coughs> I just couldn't drum at all. So um, who, the singer, who was previously the sort of um, the only one of us that was really outgoing, it was obvious he was going to be the singer, because when we mucked about, he was always the one who did the impersonation. It was mainly impersonations who he did, though. It wasn't serious. It was like either Elvis, Johnny Cash, or Shirley Bassey, people like that. Yes. So it wasn't a serious group. But when um, when we bought the drum kit on HP, we we none of us could play it, but he had been in the Boy Scout seat where he did play a snare. So he just had a gun in and it was obvious that he could play it. So he said, well, you're going to have to be the drummer because <laughs> we didn't have that much time, you know. It was all a bit rushed. Yes, absolutely. We didn't mean to be a group. We just had a name. And McLaren obviously was looking for groups. He'd come up to, um, up to us at a gig in the roundhouse and said, are you the subway set? And is that a group? And we just said, well, yeah, we didn't mean we could play anything. We, were, <laughs> we weren't lying. We were a group, but we just didn't have any instruments or anything. <laughs> yes, that's quite, I mean, it's kind of an interesting concept, really. So, so the four of you had an idea to, to be a band without actually ever playing any music. Yeah. yeah. Well, really, me and Rob, the guitarist, who actually sort of thought who we would like. Yes. That's no, I, Myers was my best mate. So, I, and he at that time he thought he was going to be a professional photographer. See, so I roped him in and said, "You can be the photographer." But he started off um, as the bass player. Yeah. Because we thought, well, same reason Paul Simonon with the Clash. It's probably the the easiest thing to learn from scratch. Yeah. You know, if you've got no musical ability, maybe the bass is a place to start, you know, because that's where I started as well. I mean, at the same time as our bass player was learning the bass, I was a bit ahead of him at bass playing because I'd already bought a bass in a junk shop. Um, so when it came to doing our first songs, I could already write the bass lines, which to teach to him, even though he was a bass player and I didn't have an instrument. Mm. And then the next step for me was <coughs> our guitarist played all the major chords, like E, G, D, and A. You know, that's all he could do. So all our songs had to be cobbled together by different, different ways of playing those four chords. So eventually he taught me how to do those four chords. And then I 
started learning how to do more than four. And by doing that, I was able to do proper songwriting for the first time because up until then, I just had to sing the tune and the words and we had to try and I had to just get him to play chords until something worked, sort of idea. But one, as, as soon as I learned how to play the, those chords, I was able to do all the songwriting myself. Yes, absolutely. And when and so from there you suddenly got behind the mic instead and and yeah. and and did that sort of was that kind of freaky or were you also sort of imitating somebody else or sort of impersonating Yeah, someone? I was imitating mainly Jonathan Richmond I'd say at, at that point. Yeah. Cuz I suppose with the, the American scene had started to happen with yeah. Those two clubs, weren't there, in New York, CBGB's yeah. and Max's Kansas City. So there was all that kind of New York doll stuff. And I suppose Malcolm McLaren was started to pick up on all that and then saw you guys. Yeah. And thought, that's well, he, it. He saw us because he went to, like, obviously it was at a Ramones gig where he saw us. So he he was interested in all the people that are in that audience because he, he told us that he wanted... Um, he didn't want to just be the Sex Pistols on their own. He wanted there to be other groups out there, you know, to make it into a movement, Not because he knew that it would be struggling if it was just Sex Pistols in isolation. Yes, absolutely. So he said, you know, we need there to be more groups like you, and um, that gave us the impetus to... Um, I mean, we, we were going down our local youth club every Sunday night when they didn't use it in the basement for free and messing about. That's all we were doing. But when we met him, it became like, oh, this could actually be a proper thing if we put in some work type idea. Yeah. And just before that period, there'd been Richard Strange and the Doctors of Madness. And they'd... I saw the Doctors of Madness supporting, I think, Bebop Deluxe Bebop in about that era. And they they mostly, because I, I did do an interview with Richard, and he said they were like two years too soon, too early for punk. So they yeah. they were a little bit past it by the time punk came along. And, and, you know, they were probably 25 and probably looked like ancient old men. Though, you know, there was bands like The Stranglers who were much older. But and there was Ultravox. Ultravox. I think they might have supported Ultravox as well, Doctors of Madness, in yes. that sort of pre-punk era. Yes, because one thing that was very useful during that period, there were, were like those kind of gatekeepers in, in sort of the music and popular culture. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there was like the music press with all the new, different I newspapers. I Mount McLaren and Bernard Rhodes being the gate. Oh, what, you mean the people keeping people out of the music? No, no, getting people in. I suppose, you know, that those people like the, the music papers that we had and then also, you know, the people like John Peel as well. Who no, we didn't have any music. They hated punk. They didn't even print anything about punk. They only got on it right at the end, didn't they? They, yeah, we'd already been doing it for six months before the music papers did even one Sex Pistols review, and that was a tiny little thing hidden away in Melody Maker. Right. Blimey. So by the time the music press got hold of punk, I'd say it was practically over. Yes. And what was they it? They got into it when the Sun got into it, didn't they? Bill Grundy and all that, and yeah. that made all the music papers change overnight as well. Because up until then, they hated punk. I guess they were saying everything, though. I mean, everyone hates things, and then when they 
think that they're doing the wrong thing, hating it. They suddenly like it, don't they? Because just through peer pressure, it was like knocking down skittles. It became really untrendy for hippie groups to say they hated punk. Yeah. at first, you know, Mick Jagger couldn't stand the rolling um, New York Dolls, could he? Yes, that's right. But years later, he probably would have had to change his mind because of the power of history proving him wrong. Yes, it was. It was. It was. It was there to stay, wasn't it? Really. Yes, Pink Floyd. But I think I think there were a couple of people, bands and artists who were coming who would who were just kind of preparing themselves for the big launch at the same time the, the punk movement was happening. And they, they yeah, hadn't got that and, and and I think that was kind of like their career was kind of over before it even started. Whereas I think bands who were around before that, like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, they could kind of weather that and come back because obviously their crowd probably didn't want to get into punk and no, and then and then picked it up a bit later. So what was it like? Well, how did you compare people like Malcolm McLaren and Bernie Rhodes? Because obviously they're, they're kind of legendary characters, aren't they? Well, Bernie Rhodes was a bit of a mentor figure for McLaren, I think. He was like slightly older, slightly less outrageous one who, you know, I think Malcolm used to use him to sort of, well, he definitely used him. I've been with both of them in a car, and they like banded ideas about, you know. And it's great to have someone like that that you can, that is on your wavelength, you know. Yes, but I, I suppose at the time, you know, they didn't mean anything back in seventy six, seventy seven. Whereas actually, the now there's like books written about Malcolm McLaren and you know documentaries about him. And I mean, Bernie's not quite so well remembered, but I mean, they they are sort of they still played a huge part in the music industry, didn't they? And and the cultural. Yeah, well, they started it all off between them, those two. Um, no doubt about that. Yes. So then, when you when you sort of get into seven, you've only got to look at like clash clothes that Bernie all. Um, yeah, he didn't sell them. He had he had someone doing that for him, but he told her what to do in design ways, and they've become like the house, the the high street norm now, haven't they? Clash trousers and clash jackets. That's what they sell in Marks and Spencers. And next, combat <laughs> trousers. Even the post office have adopted clash trousers as the uniform. You know, they've got pockets on both sides. Yeah, they're exactly like clash trousers without the camouflage. Yes, this is true. They're just grey. And the thing is, they didn't exist before Bernie did all that stuff in 76. I mean, his first... Um, the first thing I... In 1978, right, I knew that, you know, it was massive because... He had his most important client had ordered a clash, um, pair of clash combat trousers with a top to match. And guess who it was? Because they were both on CBS Row. It was his bloody Dylan. Oh, right. Bob. Dylan ordered a clash, you know, a made-to-measure clash gear in 1978. God. And um, 
I wrote a song about it that I never released called Dealing in Clash Trousers. <laughs> I've still got the words of it in my old diary out in the uh, garage somewhere, and I'd forgotten all about that, but I, you could have knocked me down with a feather when they told me up the studios that Dylan had just do. I thought they were pissing about, but it actually was true. <laughs> yes. And then quite soon after that, and when I mentioned about the gatekeepers, I suppose it was people who... If you got sort of a mention or a play on the show, you know, you, you sort of suddenly got slightly elevated to the next level in the music world. Rather than just playing in front of your family and friends and anybody else, you can blackmail, you know, to come and watch you at a local, the local pub or club. You know, you, you, got, on the John Peel, you got a John Peel session, didn't you, in kind yeah. of 77. And that must have felt like, oh, at least the band is going somewhere. Didn't to be honest, we we didn't really know what that meant about a John Peel. It wasn't described as a John Peel session anyway. It was just a BBC, right? That, that impressed us more. Than, we didn't didn't really. I mean, we'd heard the name John Peel, but we didn't actually know what John Peel session was as such. We'd never heard of it. Yes, but we knew who the BBC were so. Yeah, they were fantastic. The engineers that made a vow, absolutely. They're the, they're the exact opposite of people who work in guitar shops. <laughs> no, they are, because when we were, well, even now, I'll say when we were punks, I'll say the same now. There's no way I would ever have the guts to go into a guitar shop. I have once in my life been in a guitar shop and bought a guitar. And I just went in there and said, can I have the cheapest guitar you've got, please? Do you want to try it? No, thank you. And just get out quick. But we couldn't go in guitar shops in those days because you had these hippies in there that were absolute experts, like someone out of Yes. <laughs> and they expected you to have a go at it in front of them. And it was like humiliation. You know, they, they knew that you couldn't play it, basically, and they just wanted to humiliate you. <laughs> Whereas the people at the BBC have the exact opposite. They knew we couldn't play, but they thought, oh, this is interesting. We've never had anything like this before. What can we do to make this sound like as good as possible? You know what I mean? It's such an opposite. Yes. That says it all about the music biz to me, that the people that should be looking after you in these records, um, well, not that there are many guitar shops, have got such condescending attitudes in fact, everyone in the music business says, but people at the BBC, the blokes in the brown coats, you know, the technicians, they're the ones who actually really put 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 it all, put everything into it, you know, to make. And they got no ego; they just want to make it sound great. Yes. Well, it's interesting because actually I always find the same thing with specialist record shops. I used to find them so intimidating to go up oh, to the. Ca- I Yes, no. I, I hate that moment when you go to the counter to ask for something, and everyone stops, and all their friends who are hanging at the counter sort of look at you, and you think, "Oh my God!" And you kind of start getting that fear in the voice as you go, "Could I have the latest?" Eddie the Dreamer's latest album. <laughs> the Communards' greatest, no, no, the Commodore's greatest hits, and you just know they would all snigger. And, oh, that was yeah. So I was quite relieved, actually. You know, I've never mentioned that to anyone, but I used to, I used to find that the fear factor was like. Reduced to sort of 
yeah, you just felt complete dirt, didn't you? You just didn't, you just weren't going to ask for the right thing and everyone was judging you. God, it was horrible. Yes. It's yeah. exciting now because um, the music biz is on the run now in a major way. Especially with this lockdown, they can't get their records out. They can't get all these festivals happening. They've just had a bailout from the government, but only for 135 venues. And where's all the money from Warner Brothers and Universal and Sony? How come the government are bailing out the music industry, not the music industry? And they're making billions just in one quarter just from streaming. Yes. So if they put their hand in their pocket, they wouldn't just be able to give 150 million like our government. They're making billions every... Well, they're not making billions a week, but their sales figures per quarter run into the billions. So 130 million to WEA, Sony and Universal put together and EMI Virgin, whoever they are, that's peanuts to them, but no one's asked them to save the music industry, have they? No. It's the government. Why should the government save it and not them? It's a tricky one. It's tricky, I know. Right. It's obvious. You know, they should put their money in their pockets. Well, yes, I know. They're multinational, horrible people who want to just pay no tax anywhere, you know, like Amazon, Google and all that lot. That's why I don't do streaming, see? Good point. Because if you get your money off those streaming things, people have to start paying for it. And they do. I've worked out that people actually don't just pay you what you ask for. They pay that and a bit more if they know that you're getting it and not Google or... Warner Brothers or something like that. Spotify. Now, going back to the to that glorious period, you know, the early years, just tell us what, what you had the lineup of the band, who were your mates, yeah. and, and you had Bernie, who was your manager, right, at this stage. Yeah. Then, and then, you know, because a lot of bands have a bit of struggle after a few years, but did, did the band get sacked? Yeah. So, yeah, we didn't last two years anywhere near. No. But, we but, only lasted that one tour, really. Um, and then the drummer left, joined Generation X. I mean, our first drummer left before we even went on that tour because he just didn't want to do it. He just wanted to play local gigs in London, not go off on tour with a clash. So he, he, he packed it in before we did that tour. So we got Mark Laff, who had auditioned from the, for the clash. And uh, they... They narrowed it down to two drummers, Mark Laff or Topper, and Bernie said to Mark Laff, look, they want Topper to be in the group. Would you fancy being the other support group's drummer? So he said yes. Um, so he did the White Riot tour. But then the um, Generation X obviously thought he was a great, you know, perfect drummer for them. They must have come to see us and had a word with him, and he left on the last night of the tour in Dunstable. Yes. California Ballroom, to be exact. Yeah. And that was an amazing gig because, see, we all knew he was leaving, the Slits all knew he was leaving, so um, we played a trick on him whereby um got the roadies to pull this dry ice in his, <laughs> in his uh, <laughs> juvenile thing to do now. 
in his bass drum to set it off during the first song. And they had Palm Olive drumming behind a curtain on the side. And then, like, when all this dry ice obscured laugh, she started becoming our drummer instead, you know, and it was like <laughs> magic trick thing. But then it, I mean, it got really unruly. We ended up with all the slits and so we said all on one stage doing a version of Sister Ray that sounded nothing like Sister Ray. <laughs> and then I lost the microphone to someone in the audience. So I went into the audience to try and get the microphone back and it's total mayhem. It was a great way to end the tour. <laughs> God. And was it exciting being, you know, with the slits? Oh, and... that was great. That's really, really. I mean, it was like school kids being, you know, it was like bloody St. Trinian's and the equivalent boys' school all on one bus, you know, creating mayhem. Yes, it must have just felt like. And <laughs> seeing the, I guess it's possibly the first time you, you got to tour around Britain as well. Yeah, the first time I'd ever been to Scotland, and it wasn't the first time I'd been to Paris, though, because um, me and my bass player, Myers, we, we ran away at Paris with a tent when we were 16, right? Thinking that we weren't running away from home, we just wanted to spend the whole of the summer in Paris with no money. So we looked up a map of Paris believe it or not, decided that there were so many public squares in Paris with green on them that we could just turn up and put a tent on them. <laughs> <laughs> and we ended up going there, not being able to do that, and having to stay in cheap hotels with this great big tent carrying it around until our money ran out, which was about four days later, and then coming home. <laughs> so I had been to Paris. But, yes, um, but not Scotland. Places like Edinburgh or Glasgow or anywhere um, up north. And what were the crowds like in, in you know, some of those cities? Really, really totally unpredictable, you know, like from one night to the next for us. I mean, the Clash, pretty much, you know, everywhere loved them. But for us, sometimes they really hated us. And sometimes, uh, like we... I think the first gig we did in France, Le Mans, it was, they really hated us. A load of bikers turned up and it was a total disaster. We were bottled and everything. But then the next night we played this really lovely old theatre in Paris. I think it was one of the old, I think someone said P.F. used to sing there. And for some reason we played the, the gig of our lives. It was like a different group from the night before. And you could tell we sounded really good. I mean, I think I've even got a cassette of it, and it does sound really good even now. So out of this really shambolic nightmare the night before, the following night was absolutely... And the audience loved us. We'd never gone down so well as that one in Paris yeah. up till then. Well, it's good that, um, that, that you... That gave us a lot of confidence, actually, that Paris gig, because we were really down the night before, having been like... Booed off practically. Yeah, bottled. That's never going to go. That's never going to work on your help your confidence. So when you know when Bernie kind of sacked the band but kept you. Yeah. Did that? Were you? Were you sort of? Were you kind of in agreement with that? Yeah, only only because of the money, I suppose. Because yeah, we were all on the dole, and suddenly I'm being offered a pay. I've got a pay rise. Don't forget, it's quite a lot of money going from fifteen to. D and 
being all on those tours, I mean, I loved all the japes and all that, but I wasn't, because he told me, look, you're not really a singer, and you are never going to get anywhere, but you have got a real skill as a songwriter. So I, I went along with that. I didn't think I was a singer either, you know. So I thought I was better songwriting than singing. Yes. So I agreed with that, and more importantly, I agreed with the fact that my wages just tripled. <laughs> <laughs> so who was the uh, next lineup you had? Well, that was um, that was the one for the Buzzcocks tour in uh, 1978, the Love Bites tour. Johnny Britton came in on guitar, and um, Johnny Britton was in the support group. When we played our first headlining gig in Bristol at the Barn Hill Youth Club, it was in 1978, sorry. Well, no, it was 77, actually, not... I think we were one of the first punk groups to play there, but I think Susie and the Banshees and the Slits also played this little youth club in Bristol. And it started off like there's a lot of important people were at those gigs that went on to do, you know, like Massive Attack and Tricky and all those sort of people were, were sort of very young at, at, at this youth club. And um, Johnny Britton's his punk group called. Oh, what's their name? It's the um, the Primates. Oh yes, they were his support group. And there was a little Bristol scene of all these sort of Bristol sort of proto punk groups, and Bernie thought that Johnny was really good, and he actually had a chat with him afterwards and said, "Look, don't think much of a your group, but if you ever want to be a guitarist, come up to London." So Johnny came up to London. He was the guitarist, and. Uh, Bob Ward was, um, see, Bob Ward had already joined. After Lass left the group, joined Generation X, we had our own auditions, and that's where we got Bob Ward. So he'd already joined the first lineup, but then when um, it came to the Buzzcocks tour, it was just Bob Ward was the only one left from that lineup, and uh, Johnny Britton joined. Colin Scott was a mate of mine who lived at the bottom of my street. He wasn't really a mate of mine because he was like, three or four years younger than me. But he was a, a kid prodigy on the jazz funk bass. And at the time, because he was part of our circle of mates, he was actually helping Myers, our first bass player, he was actually practically giving him bass lessons. Even though he was like four years younger, he was showing him how to play my bass lines. So it became really easy for him to be the bass player. Yes. Because he could play so well for a start, you know, he was like but he again that that lineup only lasted that one tour as well though. Did you, you find know, did that did... tour and then we split up. But then we then I did record the album What's the Matter Boy? Yes. After that. Was that quite a relief? Yeah another lineup. <laughs> yeah, so you were on three lineups in, in almost God, four years, weren't you? Very short time, yeah. I've had I've had thirty three different drummers play with me yeah. on out the other day all together. Thirty three, that's quite a lot, yeah. Quite, yeah quite a lot. And bass players, just a bit less. Oh no, it's just drummers I go through. It's not bass players I go through a lot of. It's it's always drummers. Yeah, they're tricky ones. So when you went yeah. down, when you got to record the first album, the you know the album, yeah. what's the matter, boy? Did um yeah. was this all the material you had been playing with all the previous lineups from the beginning? It was the 
they were dramatically re, um, rearranged to suit the fact that they weren't being played in a punk style anymore because the punk groups weren't there anymore. It was like Terry Chimes and his brother on bass, who was quite sort of funky, basically. He had the Black Arabs doing all the percussion and backing vocals. So it was a much more soul-influenced sound. Yes. So the songs were totally rearranged to suit that fact. So I was just going to say, as as the sort of um, the the sort of the late seventies and then the the early eighties, you did the album "What's What's the Matter, Boy," and then and you did your tour with the with the Buzzcocks with a sort of a slightly new lineup. But yeah. then, but then, did you? Then what happens with with the next kind of phase? Because because by then you recorded an album. At Olympic Songs Studios. For sale was the next one. What one? Songs for Sale. Songs for Sale. Which we recorded in 1981 and it came out in 82. But that's when we did the club left stuff because Johnny Britton went back to Bristol after that tour in 1978. Bernie told him, go back to Bristol and make up a group and come back to London and I'll give you some gigs. Get the best drummer you can, the best bass player and come back. So that's what he did, and he got a guitarist as well. And they were sort of rockabilly group, and he was meant to be doing gigs with them. I don't know if he ever did any gigs with them, but they were also meant to record like his first single and his album. They recorded a single, and then somehow... I'd been writing all these um, songs for various people, the Black Arrows and the Polecats. And, um, but I'd also started trying to write sort of Frank Sinatra-type classic you know, American songbook-style stuff because I'd started... When the computer era came, not the computer, um, digital and synthesizers, I really didn't like it. I hated drum machines, and all my demos were done on this horrible early drum machine beat, which I couldn't stand, you know, because it's no swing. It's all boom, you know, like the early drum Yes. I, I could have got into it now, now that I'm old, but not in those days. It really turned me off. So I went the other way, and I sort of only wanted to listen to old, old, music, you know, that was like before rock and roll. So my songwriting, and the other thing is, all through um, the end of the 70s, I've been learning more and more chords, you know, the first thing Mickey Foote told me to um, get a Bob Dylan songbook so that I could learn some more chords to use, you know, and that was what he suggested, which was a great suggestion, because um, I started learning about minor sevenths and major sevenths and all these chords I'd never heard of. Because of that, it meant songwriting, I wasn't so limited, and I started writing more sophisticated songs and um, trying to ape the old Gershwins and Porters and Johnny Mercer-type songs. And that's how Songs for Sale came about, because I heard Johnny with his group rehearsing, and I said to Bernie, look, if they didn't play so fast and if they used brushes instead of sticks and they weren't quite so frantic, I think this lot could could try some of my songs. So that's almost how it started by accident, by them finding that it was very easy to adapt from rockabilly to sort of swing. Yes. A few minor changes. 
And none of this was planned because Johnny was their singer at that point. But the thing is, Johnny was really, you know, like a girl, you know, the sort of, sort of like girls, little girls fancy. So Bernie got him loads of really well-paid jobs for things like Jackie magazine <laughs> being on the cover. And it was so well-paid compared to music that John started liking that and he didn't really want to do music when he was earning all that money. Yes. So he sort of let me nick his group, really. And the group that, that he'd gone and recruited in Bristol for himself became my group. And Johnny became our DJ when we went on tour. He just brought all the records and did the DJing and he did it at Club Left as well. Because he was earning so much money, he didn't mind. Yes. Interesting, because then because there was there was a bit of a London jazz scene, wasn't there, with people like yeah. Working Working Week, and they had a guy called is it Simon Emerson who was the the guitarist with that band. He Booth. probably Simon Booth. Simon Booth, who's yes, he produced my album Trouble, and the Working Week were actually like, the, the musicians on that. Yeah, which is the album after Songs for Sale. Yes, with um. That eventually got Juliet Roberts on vocal, didn't they? Simon Booth. Yeah. And did you kind of enjoy that experience of doing a solo album? No, not at all. I found I was out of my depth, I think. I was too young. Yeah, if it happened now, I'd really enjoy it, because I know how to sing now, but I didn't then. I was really, really I'm not, not up to the job. I was up to the job of songwriting, no problem. But I wasn't... I'm not sure my heart was in it, to be honest. Like, songs for sale. Because we toured, oh, yeah, we'd done so many tours with that group before we um, recorded songs for sale. We knew the songs backwards. Yes. And we were just, like, comfortable in that sort of saloon gear, and it was all the scene. Whereas Trouble wasn't attached to it. I'd never done a live gig doing any of those songs. You know, and it's a... It's a false construct, you know, having all these top session men that cost a fortune all come into the Deer Studio in London, Olympic Studios. And oh, they were they were fantastic, but I don't think my voice wasn't good enough. But luckily, years later in the 90s, when Edwin had his own studio, he let me go down there with the master tapes and do the singing again to the bits I wasn't happy with. So then I put that out as In Trouble Again, which I, I was really proud of that because I'd actually managed to get my hands on the master tapes, wipe off all the stuff I hated and actually make it releasable. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting that re-recording re, re, certain things. Or, re, uh, yeah, sort of, I know David Bowie had some... I wasn't some... mature enough to do that album. It needed, like, a mature singer. And, you know, I could do it in the 90s, but I wasn't ready for it in 1983 or four, whenever it was recorded, you know. I mean, that album was destined never to come out, to be honest, because when it was recorded, it was recorded for Blanco y Negro, and they just didn't think much of it, so it just sat on the shelves gathering dust for like three years until Jeff Travis insisted that it be put out without being properly mixed. He said, we've got to get Sunning out to show for all this money we've spent. Yes. But I wasn't happy about it. I thought it sounded awful. So 
he gave me the master tapes back himself, you know, as a goodwill gesture. So without him, I wouldn't have been able to go back and repair it in the nineties, really. Yeah, that was quite decent of him. And did yeah. you? And did you have that moment where you just felt you needed to walk away from music during the sort of mid eighties? Yeah, that was when I joined the post office. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To be honest, I um, yeah. I did. I just thought, well, I wasn't. And also, I was very influenced by um, my parents were never mad on me doing it, to be honest. They loved it when I gave up music. Yeah, right. I did it partly for them. They thought it was a terrible thing to do for a job and that it was much better for the Royal Mail. Probably right, actually. Yes. I've spent 31 years there, so I must have had something good going for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, so when. Proved me as a singer and generally made me able to be a proper you know, music artist. The fact that I went to the Royal Mail did that for me, not anything I've done in the music biz, funny enough. It just makes you into like the full rounded human being, being a postman, because you've got to like interact with so many different people. And I've never done that before. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, and not only that, see, I had so many jobs there. I wasn't just supposed to, like, I had about three or four years as a transport manager. So I learned to drive, learned to drive lorries and things I'd never have done in a million years. Yeah, absolutely. And so I put it all to good use, obviously, because I was a transport manager. When, it, when I started doing the group again, in, you know, like, not, not really seriously until about 2000. And, I'd say I started properly in about 2005, 2006. That's the first time when I started doing gigs all the time, and that's sort of gone right up to lockdown. Before then, me doing the gig would have been a rarity. Yes. But in 2005, when I got my first group together, just made from people who couldn't play again, it's like going back to punk. And then I've never really stopped since then, although obviously every year or two the line-up changes. But, um, yeah, I, I, that's what made me... Um, I've lost my thread here. I can't remember what I started talking about 2005. Well, I think you were, talk, you were talking about being in the post office for that period of oh, time. It, yeah. See, when I started doing it again in 2005, because I'd had all those experiences, I was able to sort of plan tours well not tours because I don't do I only do like four days in a row max but I'd know the roads to get you know I'd think hang on a minute I'd work out all the petrol and things that you wouldn't think of as sort of rock person they would never work out how much petrol to get to there and how much it's going to cost to stay overnight there and is it worth doing a gig off the beaten track there they wouldn't think about those things would they no, that would... I've already done that planning route to the post office back in the eighties. Yeah, absolutely. Did you? I mean, during that kind of the time when you know before two thousand five, but sort of from the nineties, you were still sort of being slightly sort of active in the music. Well, that's when I made the comeback in um, doing that end of the Surrey People album. That was um, through Jeff Travis again because. Uh, what happened was, I had a friend at the post office who was really keen on four-track recording. One of the drummers.
drivers. And he said, when he found out that I used to do music, he said, well, why don't you try a bit of um, songwriting with me on my four track, you know, come around and try and record some of your songs. And the first song I wrote was Johnny Thunders, because I, I saw a Chris Salovich did the um, obituary for yes. him in the independent newspaper. And I just had a, a beaten up old acoustic guitar and just immediately started singing a song about him off the cuff. So I taped it, did a demo of it, and I played it to another friend of mine at work who was a record dealer called Mark Mills, who lives in L.A. now. And he happened to um, be a record dealer at record fairs on the next stall to Boz Bora from the um, Morrissey's group. He's yes. like one of his mates. So he got Boz Bora to come down to Witten, where we were doing the four-track, and hire an eight-track show us how it worked and get us started off so that we were able to make a demo good enough to give to Jeff Travis. So that's how that happened. And he liked it so much. He said, yeah, I want to do it as part of the Rough Trade Singles Club. So he did that. And then he said, have you got enough songs for an album? So we sent him a cassette of loads of songs. And he said, oh, definitely. I'll, we'll look for a producer. And then he told me to go around and see Edwin. Edwin Collins. Yeah. And that was it. Album started, yeah. And this was on postcard records, wasn't it? No, it was, it was rough trade then. This was all being done by With, Jim Travis. Right. The thing is, I don't think he had a rough trade then. I don't know. If, you know, he had a lot of where it was bought off him and all that, and he wasn't able to use the name and all that business. Yeah. There was it a... might have been that era. So although Jeff Travis was the one bankrolling it, he didn't have a way of getting it out, obviously. Yeah. Or he didn't want to put it out, or maybe he just didn't have the name Rough Trade in those days. He had Rough Trade management, but maybe he couldn't just put records out. He had a, a label called um, Tugboat, which was run by, you know, in, in name, by his uh, right-hand man in the office, so I can't remember his name now. So mm. they were the ones who put out long-term side effects, the next album, and that In Trouble Again one, where I went back to trouble and redid it. But End of the Surrey People, Edwin said that he would find a label for me. He said, don't worry, it'll come out. I'll sort out the label. So Edwin was the one who sorted it for it to come out on postcard. Right. Edwin uh... wasn't just the producer. He took, he took charge of it in the same way that Mick, Jones took charge of my latest album, Moments Like These. Yes. Now, he was going to sort out not just like the record, but he got all these record company people down and had a play through for them. And we had all, every record label under the sun down there when we finished Moments Like These. You know, on the last day of recording, he invited them all to the pub around the corner and we played them the whole album. Yeah. So Edwin um, didn't do that. But he he was the one shopping it round all the labels. Yeah. So the label that and he, I remember him saying to me, look, if the worst guy he actually said this, he said, look, if no one wants this album, Vic. It will definitely come out because if the worst comes, the worst it'll have to come out on postcard. <laughs> <laughs> and that is what happened. So obviously, no one did want it. <laughs> yes. 
the motto was the uh, the sound of young Scotland, wasn't it? Yeah. Postcard records. Did you ever meet the famous Alan Horn then, who yeah. ran? Yeah, Alan came round after that. He came round to do all the publicity shots. He came down to um, my council flat at the time, which is just round the corner from here, and yes. took a load of great photographs of me and my wife, and had a chat for hours, and then we kept in touch for a while. I'm not in touch with him now, though. No, and what was Grace? Is, uh, Grace and Edwin, obviously are. Yeah, and did um, and what was Alan like? Because he's quite an enigmatic character who's kind of disappeared, hasn't he? Well, he's looking after Paul Quinn, I think. He's not very well, you know. So right. he looks after him in the same way that I look after my dad. Because, I mean, Paul Quinn's got a really bad ME, hasn't he, I think. Oh, He's had okay. for a long while, so it's like... He's getting worse and worse, I suppose, over time. That's hard. So he needs Alan to look after him. Okay, yeah. And what's, I mean, because you'd worked obviously with with Malcolm, Bernie, and then Alan Horn. How did, you know, if you could, how did they kind of, yeah, compare to each other a bit? Oh, Alan Horn's just like, like one of my group, you know, he's just like a fan. Like Bernard and um, Malcolm McLaren weren't like that at all. They were like, they weren't one of us. They were like the people who sort of were called movers and shakers. Alan wasn't one of them, really. I think it all the postcard, it was more like accident. Yes. And also, he had a lot of people around him that could do... Um, I mean, from what Grace and everyone told me, Alan was a bit of a disaster, really. Yeah. He couldn't... He couldn't hold a room like Bernie or Malcolm. I mean, they had a real lot of arrogance, those two. I don't. I think Alan had the arrogance, but he didn't have the mouth to sort of go with the arrogance. He was quite. He was right. I thought he was really similar to me. He seemed quite shy. You know, we got on like a house on fire. Yeah. He's some... not the sort of person you'd want on your side if you going from me. He was like high-powered record executives. No, I would because he's a bit of a shrinking violet like me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you need someone to sort of with a bit of muscle. Yeah, you need someone who's a bit thick-skinned. He's not that. He's not cut out to do that, I don't think. Yeah. In fact, uh, when he was doing my album, presentation of what you have to do, Grace and everything said he just freaked out and ran away, and they had to do it. Oh... <laughs> 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 uh. uh. Bless. Oh, God, you have great. worked. You have worked with some amazing people, haven't you? You've, you know, I mean, yeah, and Irving Welsh. Don't forget Irving. I did the Blackpool thing with him, that which was um, great from my point of view, but not from his point of view, because I, it's one of his only disasters. Like everything he does is normally really successful. <laughs> <laughs> we did a musical thing with him doing the script and me doing like ten songs. But at least I managed to record four and put them out as an EP, which he loved. So. It wasn't like all for nothing. No. But that the performance of the actual Blackpool musical has got such dire reviews. It only lasted about five nights or something. God, one of those yeah. the musical that died. I mean, with the with the new with the new album, when is it um, going to be hitting the November. air? November. November this year. Yeah, it's on import only. It's on a label called Tech. And Tone, who are like a small book book publisher in New York, who don't normally do records, 
but they do sometimes give away flexi discs in their books. So this is the first sort of proper record they've ever done. Right. Yes, that's that's amazing. So how did yeah. you manage to sort of wangle that one? I didn't wangle it. It's a, an old friend of mine who used to be a journalist called Sukbin the Sandu, who once wrote a really great article about me saying, in time out, my favourite Londoner, it used to be called on the inside back cover of time out, and he did, did one about me. So that was in the 90s. I didn't even know he lived in New York, but he's been, he's been at the university in New York for quite a long while, and he, he's still living there now. And he asked me about a year ago if there was any way he could get the rights to put out What's the Matter Boy in America, because he said, I can't believe it's never been out there, and it should be. And he said, I want to start my own little... Um, I've got my own book label, but I want to... Uh, make the, start making the odd record that I really like. And I said, well, yeah, you can do that. But I said, what would be even better is if you, we haven't got anyone who wants to put out my current album. So when I sent it to him, he loved it. And he said, oh, yeah, let's go. He forgot about What's the Matter Boys and uh, put this out instead. Yeah. He's got some heavyweights that's coming with a book right, that's going to be written by... Um, Stephen Pastel and Stephen Daly from Orange Juice. That comes with the album. And then the actual sleeve notes on the album is being done by Jim Reed of the Jesus and Mary chain. So we've got some good writer, great writers already, you know, just for the writing of it. Wow. Do you find that your, your kind of artistic kind of uh, stock um, has, has kind of grown over the decades? That Yeah, but... That's not just recent, that's always happened, you know. I mean, some of the records we did, we thought they were really dire at the time. But every year that goes by, instead of, like, getting worse, they, they get a little bit better, some <laughs> of them, you know. So things that you're really embarrassed by, I couldn't even bear to listen to something like Nobody's Scared then. I thought it was the worst thing I'd ever heard. But now, I love it. Yes. So that's been a very gradual thing that's taken me all those years, you know, 40 years to actually realise. And I think that's a similar thing that happens to me, it happens to the general public, or not the general public, but anyone who might, you know, like you say, it's a very gradual thing. It's like very incremental, but every year it's because... You, I suppose I don't let any of my stuff be used for really horrible adverts and nasty, tacky things I don't tend to do. Yeah. That helps. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Things get devalued if they're... Like things you love, you don't really love them as much once they've been on a bloody advert for detergent. Do you? <laughs> you ever get that where you think, oh, no, don't use that. It's like sacrosanct, you know. Yeah, I do remember there was a... Too many people are just trying to make money from adverts. They're not bothered about... You know, they're just really short-sighted. They're not bothered about the long-term value of something not being used in things like that. Yeah. Want the, I suppose I'm talking for... Because I've got my post office pension. I, I'm lucky man. You know, a lot of people are desperate for the money, but... 
they're not all desperate for money because some of the people who do it, they're already rich, aren't they? And you think, well, hang on, why do you need to do that with all your money? <laughs> I'm always thinking that about some of these artists. Think, you know, you don't actually need to do that. You can't be running out of money, and it's a really, it's just really beneath what you should be doing. Don't you ever get that? Yes, absolutely. I think I think when someone I don't know I think was it Willie Nelson who suddenly had a massive tax bill and I think he had no money because he got kind of swindled and I think he had to do some some bits and pieces to pay stuff off and I thought well you 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 obviously just need to sort this out and whatever you know complete fine but when someone's kind of all right they seem like you just need another you just want another house somewhere don't you another another island to play with so it's a bit like hmm. About my post of his pension, right? I put it. I didn't know what to do with it when I got it when I retired at sixty. And I, so, I, the only person I know best with money is Paul Cook, obviously. So I said, "What do I do with this money, boy?" He said, "Oh, I'll take you to this bloke." So he took me this bloke in Chancery Lane. And I, so I'm, I'm the sort of bloke I just don't like having. It. I just want to get it out of my head to give it to him. Forget about it, right? And because of the pandemic, they send you, like, bulletins. Now, I had about 30 or, no, 32 grand before the pandemic. And, like, I got a thing not that long ago, and it had got down to, like, was it 25 grand? So I was like, oh, shit, I won't have any money left then. What do I do? Do I just take it out and spend it or what? I phoned Paul and I said, have you seen your... Obviously, he's got a lot more than 30 grand in his thing. I guess there's some industries and some some kind of yeah companies. Maybe there are signs that things might pick up. Yeah. But anyway, so I phoned Paul. I said, "Yeah, did you see that? Did you get a statement?" He said, "Yeah, I see." He said, "Yes, yeah, see, I told you. It just goes up, it goes down. Just forget about it." <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I know. I know. It's like it's probably worry. You one worries more when you have got money than if you haven't, probably because. Absolutely. But he's very wealthy, so it's easy to say that, isn't it? That's true. <laughs> That's what they know. Yeah. So look, what would I mean? Just lastly, I mean, if you if you could say something to an eighteen year old self, right? 
from all the decades of experience you've had and all the experiences and an amazing amount of musicians you work with. I mean, if you could have just said something, uh, you know, that you've learned from, from being on this earth, what would it be? Oh, keep a diary, definitely. Don't rely on your memory. Write it down while it's happening because there's so many occasions where I've needed to know things from the past and I'll... I just haven't got it. You know, I've got it from other people's recollections. That's what this newsletter's about, partly. Trying to fill in the blanks by other people that were there and trying to get as many people that were there as possible so that you can actually piece together not just what happened, but the sort of order. That's what I get wrong, the order of when things happen. Yes. I'm never sure did that happen before that. And that's what's great about the internet. It's got dates on these old... When you see these old clips, you see the date and you think, ah, oh, that was before that, and that was after that. You know, that's what I love doing, trying to piece it all together. So, Are you tempted to try and... your own diary, you'll, be, um, you'll know exactly what you've done. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, are you tempted to try and sort of get some sort of book, you know, to document your kind of life? You know, I've, I've written, like, I've written about... 304 pages of a book that will be a book hopefully one day but at the moment I'm just doing these bitty things these little one subject at a time things Yes. and I'm not taking them from the stuff that I've written which is good I'm doing it off the top of my head so all the stuff that I've written is in addition to all that as well yeah well it's a good start at least you start getting something kind of yeah. Quite physical. It's painting now, that takes up all my time. See, I paint, paint cigarette boxes and I paint about, must be all, about 600 altogether. Yes. When that did takes you... up a lot of my time now. And um, wait, just briefly, how did, when did that start? Well, it started less than two years ago. I've never, never done art at school or anywhere, but my partner Mandy was a painter and she did his now and again and she said, why don't you try painting? I said, I can't paint. She just, she said, just have a go. And I loved it so much, I've never stopped. God, that's excellent. Yeah, yeah. I've got 350 in pot wrecks in Sunderland that have been up there for about a year and a half. And I'm going to, I've been asked by Thurston Moore, has asked for some for his art centre in Stoke Newington when he gets it going. Oh, blimey, so... I'm going to have cigarette boxes, my painted ones, hopefully all over the place. Yes. In the future years. Good old Thurston Moore, Sonic Years. Yeah. Nice one. Yes, well, look, I've got this right. Moments like these. Like these, yeah. Produced. It off the tongue. It does slip off the tongue. And you have got all the way from, he briefly was in Norwich, Terry Edwards, hasn't, haven't you? on a couple of the tracks and Pete Williams from Dexes is on the last track and Mick is on every track Mick Jones but he doesn't play one note of guitar no. he's nearly exclusively on keyboards I mean he's great on keyboards all different keyboards he plays on the album and quite a lot of vocals he does as well yeah so he's hell. done a great job with um, production yes and without being biased is this the most exciting album you've ever done? Oh, by a long, long way. Long, it's the only album where I've actually played the whole thing live with a group. 
more than a few times before he recorded it, other than Songs for Sale, which is ironic it's the same group. But yeah. um, we did the same with Songs for Sale. We re- relentlessly toured up and down doing all sorts of support gigs. This one, we haven't had done as many, but we've done enough gigs where we've actually played the whole album in the right order from start to finish several times before we even recorded it. So that really helps, that does. Yeah, it knocks it into shame, doesn't it? Yeah. And I've never, I've never, as I say, I've only ever done two albums like that, Songs for Sale and Moments Like These. All the other albums have been um, really, what you'd say, studio albums, not albums where you, I mean, what's the matter, boy? Obviously, I've done those songs live, loads of, but in a punk style, not in any style remotely like the way they were done on that album. Yes. And it's all going to be available on it's text and tone. Yeah. I must go and check that out. This is going to be exciting. I'll, I'll send you one as soon as we get. Brilliant. There's plenty of copies. Fantastic. Well, look, I'll keep in touch. But thanks, Vic, for this. And um, I'll send you a link to the, the um, show as well so you can use that on your Facebook Brilliant. page. But look, right. have an amazing day. And thanks again. Cheers, David. Okay, take care. Okay, right, see you there. Bye bye. And that is how you say goodbye, perhaps. Anyway, that was me in conversation with Vic Goddard. You probably gathered that if you're still with it by the end. Anyway, big thank you to Vic for giving me the time for that um, interview. If you want to know any more information about the band, um, you can go to vicgoddard.co.uk, and that's V-I-C. Then it's G-O-D-A-R-D. And uh, there's lots of information about Vic Goddard and and subway sec so uh yes check it out anyway this is this is me david Easter. if you want to contact um yes the show you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show and also these have all been archived and you can find those on spotify itunes and podbean that's it have a great week